Hello, everyone. Welcome to the thirty-third episode of In the Between. My name is Nadia, and this is Danny. <laughs> and <laughs> today we're gonna talk about something wonderful, something colorful. We're gonna talk about um, well, basically blue and pink, right, Danny? Yeah, color. Yes. <laughs> Colors, yeah. And this was prompted by a little um, IG story series that Instagram story series that Lamvan has launched called mm. Lamvan Dialogues that um, they've been posting on their Instagram page. And the first uh, Lamvan dialogue, I mean, all of these are hosted by uh, Judith Clark, an exhibition maker based in London, who was the head of the course that I did. So I'm I'm very used to her very soothing voice and the way that she views the world. Yeah. So she introduced. A... Yeah, she's she's. Oh, I was yeah, gonna say good. she's a charismatic speaker. Yeah, oh, she. All right. She, she totally is, and everybody gets a snippet of it here. So here in the that Lamvan dialogues, she introduced the first episode, which was, um, featuring the head of archives at Lamvan, which I find so fascinating. Her name is Laura Harivel. And they spoke about blue and how uh, Jean Lamvan actually was a lover of blue. And she loved it so much that she um, started her own dyeing workshop to develop different shades of blue. And she was very inspired by early Renaissance paintings and created specific dyes um, to bathe her garments in different shades of blue. So I found it so wonderful and all the fashion illustrations so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really good. And I mean, if you think about um, the color opposite, if there is that, then there's also Scaparelli pink. Yes, shocking. Yes, shocking. So where Longvin blue is like soothing, pink seems really in your face and shocking. I mean, of course, it can be pastel as well, but that's not what I think when I think pink. Yeah, and Schiaparelli has this amazing quote that she, how she described hot pink, the, the pink that she chose as, quote, life-giving, like all the light and the birds and the fish in the world put together, a color of China and Peru, but not of the West. So she associated pink with like um, exotic, other exciting places. And, mm. um, and when you look at how it's being used for her, she, she named her perfume Shocking. And it, it's like in this bright pink Shocking um, packaging. And you can see it in pictures of different types of uh, perfumes and cosmetics that she created for that time. So she really used Shocking Pink as a way to like brand her, her objects as well. Mm. Actually, it's interesting that you talk about pink and blue because that's what we usually associate, you know, um, with female and male right so you know we always think well if you have a baby girl then she should wear pink and if you have a baby boy then you know you would gift um, blue clothes and blue items really but mm-hmm. i know that actually you know it's not it's not always been the case no. so i'm just looking at this smithsonian um mag web page where it says when or where it asks, when did girls start wearing pink and it says here that even as late as uh, 1918, there was this trade publication, Earnshaw's Infants Department, that said the generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. 
And the reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, just like you've said earlier with the Scaparelli pink, is Mm -hmm. more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. (laughs) That's what was, you know, indicated in this article in 1918. Um, So it's really interesting that it's changed. I don't know what went, how it, you know, it morphed into that. Yeah, I this was the the topic of an exhibition that Valerie Steele held at the FIT Museum in 2018 called Pink, the History of a Punk Pretty Powerful Color. So she talks about exactly what you said. So in the 18th century, men wore pink. Um, it was a color that you could see in a lot of frocks from that time. And only in, in the 20th century in America, it started becoming a stereotype for boys to wear blue and women and, and girls and baby girls to wear pink but even before like if you see like iconography like catholic iconography mother mary wears like light blue so mm-hmm. blue was not always associated with boys yeah and you know this is it sounds like it's really innocuous but it really gets into you know the psyche of like little boys and little girls so yeah. for some of my my son is only four turning five soon and he really loves pink that's his favorite color you know but he so he yeah but you know he knows that he shouldn't like pink so oh. um yeah so for example we we're looking at school bags and then he wanted to buy a pink one like he really liked it so I said, <laughs> oh yeah just go ahead no i don't mind i mean it's just a color and if you like it go for it but he said no if i bring this to school uh, my classmates will laugh at me because oh, no. you know boys shouldn't like pink and i felt a little sad but also like hmm that we really should get this pink bag because you know <laughs> he should know that it's just a color really doesn't have that kind of meaning and there's nothing wrong with liking what you like yeah um and this you know reminds me of one of my favorite art projects by a korean artist called jongmi yun so she has this pink and blue project that's what it's called and she basically um, explores, from her website, it says, explores the trends in cultural preferences and the differences in the taste of children and their parents from diverse mm-hmm. cultures, ethnic groups, as well as gender socialization and identity. So it's a series um, where she basically photographs kids with their belongings. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how, you know, like the girls that she photographs just has so many pink things like bed sheets, toys, clothes, even the walls sometimes. Um, <laughs> and then for the boys, it's like mostly blue, uh, you know, like trains, train tracks, um, stationary. And it's really quite jarring to see everything laid out around the child. Okay, first of all, there's like the kids have so many things these days. That's one thing. But the explosion of like just that one primary color um, and I'm just wondering, you know, if it's something that's imposed by the parents who also kind of like absorb, you know, what is right or what is the appropriate or conventional color to purchase. And also even, you know, the colors that are available because in yeah. the Smithsonian article, they even say things like, you know, disposable diapers started to be manufactured in pink and blue and it would be like pink for the girls and blue for the boys. Yeah. And... um. After I gave birth to my kids, I realized that there were actually some parents who, you know, started new businesses where they wanted to give gender neutral colors. So they would do things like in black and white and yellow, wow. um, <laughs> which was, yeah, which was pretty interesting. Also, I mean, it's become like a, a big thing, you know, and it's like people really get into it. Um, whether it's like, yes, you know, girls can like pink and that's amazing or like, no, boys should wear pink clothes and that's a good thing to do. 
And actually, this reminds me of, you know, the circuit. I know we're kind of going a bit off tangent and we'll come back, I promise. But um, <laughs> do you remember when the Prime Minister Lee Sin Long, he was like making oh all his Oh my gosh, speeches? his pink shirts, yes. That's right. And then he changed into a blue shirt, right? When he was uh, announcing the extension of the circuit breaker or the lockdown. Maybe, maybe he wanted to make us feel calm. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because there was this like photo going around where people put all his like outfits from all his addresses in recent years and then it's like boom suddenly it's the blue for the extension <laughs> of the lockdown so i think color you know can really uh, send a message and i think you know you were telling me that there were a couple of other exhibitions that you came across which explored um color or like a single color in more detail yeah well the opposite of color is non-color which is Technically, scientifically, black is a colour that absorbs everything and actually has no colour. But it has become a staple of fashion uh, and of um, many designers. So there was this exhibition um, in the National Gallery of Victoria on black, but it, um, a fashion exhibition, and it was called Black from Morning to Night. And that was in 2009. And what it was looking at was how black was a color that was used a lot in mourning in the Victorian era. Um, and then suddenly gained popularity in, in fashion and became a color that was used a lot to signify elegance and was used in nightgowns, sorry, in night uh, evening wear. So that was what the exhibition was exploring, which is really fascinating. And even... Um, for MoMA's, um, um, they did an exhibition called Is Fashion Modern in 2017? And one of their objects was the little black dress. And Valerie still also spoke about black and how black has so many personalities. Like um, both, in there's a good black and a bad black. And black can be about discipline. And for example, nuns and priests um, wear it. And it's a color that doesn't show a lot of dirt. But it can also be like a very rebellious and kind of like naughty color, like in punk and um, and and yeah, and so it has these two dualities, and that's why it's been like a favorite by many different designers. Mm, it's all really interesting, and actually, I can't believe that. Um, I mean, the title of the exhibition is amazing. From yeah. morning to night, that's so clever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I don't know whether this is on topic or not, but like, you know, sometimes even when we think about colour, I mean, colour is used um, in fashion not only for like, you know, the, the real physical colour for clothes, but also to convey ideas. Like, you know, when we mm. say things like um, sustainable fashion, we always think about it as something uh, about going green. Yeah. You know, and yeah, so it definitely has some... Um, much more of a, a relevance to to fashion than yeah. we would we would think, and, and also mm, go ahead. Yeah, and and in this book called um the secret lives of color, um by this, let me get, um there was this chapter about how pink also has like for example we use the word pink to say the pink tax which means that um you are you charge people more for items that are meant to be marketed to women and mm. are in pink. So yes. for example, it was based on these like razors that I think Gillette did and they cost twice as much, like four times as much in blue, eh, sorry, in pink than in blue. And 
and like some politicians were saying what does the pigment pink cost so much more and so then that yeah. was what they referred to as the pink tax yeah so the pink tax is yeah exactly the extra amount that women pay for everyday products right like razors yeah. shampoo haircuts clothes dry cleaning um just because it's for women they seem to think that they can mark up the price um because well i, I don't know what it is i mean it just is something that's done and the tax or in inverted commas, applies to items that spend a woman's entire life. So from mm. like girls' toys to school uniforms, to canes, to braces, and even to adult diapers. Um, yeah, so this is a really interesting thing to, to look into as well. And certainly one of the, the other idea about how colour can also um, denote something that isn't exactly a physical yeah. shade, I guess. Yeah, not being but very like an good idea. at communicating. Yeah, like an idea or concept. Um, so I was also thinking about, you know, some other colors because you mentioned Longvin Blue and then like Scaparelli Pink. I was thinking about other brands where color is really iconic or representative mm-hmm. of it. And I was thinking about Tiffany's. Um, oh, yes. You know, like blue. Tiffany and Co. And they have, of course, that blue. I mean, it's not really like a blue. It's like a it's like greenish blue. Greenish blue. Like teal. Yeah. I don't know, official <laughs> name for it. I don't know. Tiffany blue, I guess. You know, and yeah. um, that idea is just so iconic, right? Like you see it and you already know it's that brand. So it's like amazing marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also Hermes uses that bright orange. That's right. Oh, packaging and... When you see that, you know it's an Hermes. Yeah. Well, I'm actually looking at Tiffany Blue now. It's, it's supposedly the colloquial name for the light, medium, robin egg blue colour. Okay, so <laughs> that's the, the more official um, explanation of it. And yeah, like with Hermes and their orange, I mean, you know, you can buy these packagings as well, right? Like the... Um, Hermes boxes and things like that is so iconic. Um, Orange is, well, the Hermes orange is like a warm, really dynamic, I guess, joyful color. And definitely it symbolizes luxury and good taste. Mm. Well, Mm. in The Secret Lives of Color um, by Kezia Sinclair, she also mentions how when you look at literary texts from like the Greeks or antiquity times, they don't have a lot of mentions of color. And apparently, even if you read the whole Bible, there isn't a mention of how the sky is blue. Like, So she, what, the, what she was saying was that um, our perception of color also depends on how much language and vocabulary we have to describe the color, which I oh. thought was very interesting because, I mean, I'm assuming the sky was blue always, but we just <laughs> never had that word for blue perhaps. Or, hmm. or we haven't um, thought about the different shades of it and found different uh, words, specific words for them. Yeah, and I mean, speaking about colours and how we might not have had the vocabulary because maybe it didn't exist. Um, I mean, I came across this rather, um, yeah, like just out of the blue. Oh, see, I've mentioned colour again. <laughs> and um, there's this Harvard <laughs> Library. <laughs> There's this Harvard library that apparently protects the world's rarest colours. Wow. Um, Can you yeah, imagine it's... being like a, a guard a, yeah, a guard of colour? 
Yeah, like a guardian of colors, right? So yeah. um, there is such a person. He's um, the person is called Narayan Kandekar, who is the director of the Straw Center for Conservation and Technical Studies at the Harvard Art Museums and the collection's custodian. So for the last ten years, um, Kandekar has rebuilt the collection to include modern pigments to better analyze twentieth-century、mm. and contemporary art. So I'm getting all this from a Fast Company、um, article, and it's just really fascinating. And it's actually from、um, the Forbes collection. So the history of pigments goes back to prehistoric times, of course. But much of what we know about how they relate to the art world comes from a historian called Edward Forbes, and he was the director of the Fogg Art Museum.、Um, so his name is Forbes, but then the art museum is called Fogg. FOGG Art Museum、mm. at Harvard University from 1909 to 1944, and he's considered,、wow. um, yeah, like the pioneer of art conservation in the United States. And what he did was he traveled the world to get pigments, um, in order to authenticate classical Italian paintings. Wow. And yeah, and now it has more than two thousand five hundred different specimens with、oh、you know,、gosh. and all the specimens is like their backstories, um, their origins, their production, their use, and there are some really. Amazing things in this collection. So some things are more known than others.、Um, well, I'm going to talk about things that are less known, I guess. So there was this. There's this thing called mummy brown. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really <laughs> pleasant, but actually, they mean mummy as in like Egyptian mummies, you know. <laughs> so it says here like people would harvest mum harvest. Gosh, that word for mummies harvest mummies from Egypt. And then extract the brown、oh. resin material that was on the wrappings around the bodies and turn that into a pigment,、oh、and it was apparently really popular in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries.、Um, and then what else is there?、Uh, I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce this, but I think it's cochineal. Is that correct?、I'm、not sure. It's from squash beetles. Um,、mm. it's a red dye. Okay, I'll just spell it in case I got it completely wrong. C o c h i n e a l. And yeah, it's like made from squash beetles, <laughs> and it's used in cosmetics and food. Wow! Yeah, and then of course, as always, you know, there are always things that、um, are were really dangerous, are really dangerous, but people didn't know about it. So, for example, cadmium yellow, which was introduced in the middle of the nineteenth century, is a bright yellow that many impressionists use, you know, in their artworks.、Mm. It's a heavy metal. It's very toxic,、um, but up till Like even the nineteen seventies, Lego bricks still had cadmium pigment in them. Oh my gosh! This reminds me a little bit about aniline dyes that had. Yes. Um.、Mm. So there were there's this emerald green that's very that was very popular in the late eighteen hundreds. Um, and manu and it would poison the skin, but the manufacturers continued making those dresses because they sold very well. Yeah, I think you're speaking about yeah, emerald green, which is also in this archive. Yeah, is um, acetyl arsenide, and um,、mm. apparently, I mean, like Van Gogh used it in his artworks. Um, but it also was used as an insecticide. Wow. <laughs> but it's so pretty, right? Emerald、yeah. green, such a rich color. It, yeah, it's so interesting it's like, because then、mm. it's like that relation between the the real colors and their、mm. physical effects on on people, right? Yes, for sure. The smell. Yeah, and I mean, you know, nowadays we are always looking at colors on a screen, and you know, sometimes we order clothes, and when it comes, it just looks so different from what we see.、Um, yeah. In terms of like what the colors like, what the fabric feels like, and 
um, you know, if you are printing a book, for instance, I'm just wondering about like, you know, how when you're printing a catalog of like artworks or like um, clothing and, you know, you would be able to just see on a screen, of course, but no matter what it is, you'll have to print it out and look at it like in the sunshine or something so that you get the exact shape that you want, that it yeah. approximates the real deal as far as possible. Yeah. And yeah. there could be, literally, if you really go down the rabbit hole of trying to get a swatch of every colour of the world, it will be unstoppable because different, um, for example, a red brick in in Sahara, in the Sahara would be different from a red brick in like the Arctic um, or from a red brick in Singapore at a certain time because of the light and any of the other elements that affect how we perceive the colour. Yeah, for sure. And of course, if we are thinking about like the whole library of colours um, in the world, then we can't, you know, not think about Pantone. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, when did Pantone become the authority on colour? Well, it's a limited liability company that's headquartered in um, New Jersey. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have come to know it so well because, like, you know, if you want to paint something, you would kind of get out the swatches, right? Yes. Or, you know, like, every year there's, like, the colour of the year, you know, yeah. which they think will be, like, super popular, um, you know, based on trend analysis. So, yep. for instance, um, when was it that it was Millennial Pink, which we both loved? I think it was 2016. Let me see. Millennial. Millennial. Well, um, this year, it was the it is the colour Classic Blue. I guess we really needed to go classic and for it to be blue because we needed to be very calming this year, given how strange things are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 2016. You're right. For yeah. the Millennial Pink. Yeah. Hmm. And then it it developed into coral, coral in, 2019. in 2019. Yeah. yeah. And now we've gone kind of like the opposite. So, I mean, it's really interesting how we started off with pink and blue and we're ending with pink and blue because... Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah so it's like... Yeah. So I guess that means it's a good spot to end mm-hmm. um, right back where we started. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe to um, the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can see the images that relate to what we speak about on our Instagram page at In The Vitrine. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye.